In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. One of these days when Cleve does one of those beautiful improvisations, I'm just going to stay seated and let him give us the meditation on the gospel. Every Sunday in the Eucharist and perhaps other days of the week, whenever we pray, we often say the Lord's Prayer. Those words come almost automatically for many of us, and perhaps we don't always stop to think about some of the phrases, some of the statements, some of the ideas, the prayers within that prayer. There's one petition in particular that I think has some real difficulty built into it if we really listen to it. Forgive us our trespasses, we pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I was reminded yesterday at a funeral that the Presbyterians still say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, which sends me off in a whole other direction. The newer ecumenical version that we use at the 6 p.m. Eucharist makes it very blunt, sometimes a little too blunt. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. If one were to look back at the Aramaic, the original languages, it doesn't help clarifying it any. It's still problematic if you think about what exactly that phrase means. I hope that the phrase means that just as I try to forgive other people, that God will also forgive me. But what if the prayer implies really that God only forgives me insofar as I'm able to forgive others? That's an entirely different thing, isn't it? What if God's forgiveness of me hinges upon or depends upon even my ability to forgive others? If that's the case, I might be in some trouble. Our scripture readings for today show us that forgiveness is never quite so clear as one might hope or imagine. Forgiveness is multi-layered, multi-textured. It it involves relationships, and so it gets messy. Forgiveness involves relationships that shift and change, that grow, that sometimes diminish. But for forgiveness to flow steadily and really from God to or through us, for forgiveness to truly be given or received, then At least somewhere along the way, the relationships need to be put into order. Or at least, I think, the relationships need to be honest and named as not being in order. That's certainly what we see in the first reading. That first reading, we hear about King David. King David has been looking out his window, and like many other things, perhaps he's seen that he liked and wanted and took He sees Bathsheba, and he decides he's going to have her too. David has power, he has position, he abuses both to get his way. 
The fact that she has a husband doesn't bother him. The fact that her husband is a loyal, fighting man, a soldier, fighting to protect the kingdom, to protect David, that doesn't bother David either. Instead, King David simply has Uriah put on the very forefront of the battle, where the fighting is fiercest. He knows what will happen. And sure enough, Uriah is killed in battle. Problem solved for the king. And so David moves in for the woman he wants, the possession he wants, really. But God sees all this, and God sends Nathan the prophet. Nathan, like a good preacher, tells a story that sort of circles around and invites David to find himself in that story. We heard the story about a a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man really doesn't have much at all, but what he does have is one little lamb. But a stranger comes into town and demands the lamb. Well, David hears that story, and David's outraged that such a thing could happen. It's unfair, it's unjust, it ought not to be allowed. The one who demands the lamb should be punished, David blurts out. And then Nathan very carefully shows David, you are that man. You're the one whose greed and lust has blinded you to your own guilt. And so perhaps that story with Nathan, the the priest prophet, begins a process of confession of asking God for forgiveness, perhaps asking Bathsheba for forgiveness, the family of Uriah, who knows who needs to be asked all along the way. But David will have to come clean before he can even begin to think about receiving God's forgiveness. David needs to get to some new place of honesty and clarity before God's grace can flow. David has gotten used to relying on himself for everything so much that he's fallen deeply into sin. And so now, in order to receive God's forgiveness and move forward, David has to relearn what it is to be humble, what it is to fall into the arms of God, what it is to ask for help, what it is to have faith in God's goodness. But David's got a long, long way to go. Those of you who may be familiar with uh, 12-step recovery programs know the genius of the spirituality in those programs. Mm, There are two steps in particular that have something to say to this whole idea of forgiveness. The eighth and the ninth steps, they're separate aspects of moving toward forgiveness. Forgiveness of oneself, forgiveness from God, eventually forgiveness from others if that's possible. Step eight says that one has made a list of all persons one has harmed and becomes willing to make amends to them all. That takes time, and one is usually encouraged to spend some time right there, not speeding up, but right there, making lists and acknowledging what one has done, who one has harmed, what institutions, what individuals who is guilty, who is not. Then and only then, usually with the guidance of another person, one moves to that step nine where one makes direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 
Sometimes the movies show someone who is newly sober or newly changed because they've begun a 12-step program and they immediately jump into this making amends and expecting everyone to hear their apologies. Usually it doesn't work that quickly in the real world. It takes time. In our gospel today, forgiveness takes time, but in different ways. A woman approaches Jesus, and we're not really given her name. Some have have pretended to know her name, and some have suggested maybe this is Mary Magdalene herself. There was a famous book a few years ago out by Margaret Starbird. It's a wonderful name, but the book was called The Woman with the Alabaster Jar, and That book sort of convinced many that this woman was Mary Magdalene, but that's not what the scriptures say. We don't know her name, but she is famous, famous for her act of of grace, of kindness, of generosity, of passion even. Passion that scares the disciples, but it doesn't scare Jesus. He understands it and he accepts it. The woman begins to bathe and anoint Jesus' feet with her tears and with this expensive ointment. And all the religious leaders are sitting around watching, and they're appalled at this. They know all about this woman. They know her stories. They know the gossip. Don't you know who she is? Don't you know what she's done? But that's just it. Jesus does know her. Jesus knows her, and they don't. Jesus knows all about her. Jesus knows that God made her. Jesus knows that God loves her and that somehow she's sorry for her past and wants to move into the future. Jesus knows all of this, that she wants to be free and clean and new, and partly because all the people in that room she's held back and can't be. And so Jesus forgives her, and she receives that forgiveness through her faith. Today's scriptures show us that forgiveness doesn't happen in the abstract. As hard as we might try, it doesn't happen when we go to an empty church and pray that we be forgiven. We need to feel it one way or another. Forgiveness usually happens between two people or more people, two very human people. But it's God who does the forgiving. That's the great word of grace, the word of hope, the word that gives any of us a chance. It's God who forgives, not me, not you. God originates the forgiveness. God helps it along in us, and God moves us toward the other person or the people in both frustrating and freeing ways. It can be frustrating because sometimes I want the forgiveness to happen before it's really going to happen. I think of a couple I know where one in the couple did something awful and there was a separation and then a divorce. And so the one who really instigated all the pain is now ready to be forgiven and let's have a new life and let's all be friends. You can imagine the one who's still grieving is not in any way ready to forgive or move into that next place. So often if we have done something to offend someone else, then then we're ready to be forgiven. We want to be fixed. We want it to be clean and clear. We want our own sense of justice and mercy to happen. Make me feel better, we pray to God. But sometimes that 
icky feeling of in-between of not being forgiven is the beginning of healing. (laughs) Then again, if I'm the one who's wronged, sometimes I want that other person to stew in their guilt a little longer. (laughs) I'm ready to forgive them, but that would be letting them off too easy. And so I want to continue to be in control of that a little bit. I might tell myself, oh, that person needs to understand what they've done, or they need to show that things will be different in the future. But if I'm really honest, it's because I'm trying to do all the forgiving and I'm not allowing God to do it. If we're connected to God, the source of all forgiveness, then we can pray that we would be open to God's timing in the forgiveness, whether we're really ready or not. It's God's work that will be unfolding. The fact that forgiveness belongs to God is frustrating for those reasons I just mentioned, but it's also incredibly freeing because it means I don't have to be God. I don't have to be in charge of that. I can be human. I can confess my own unwillingness to forgive or my own hesitance to be forgiven. In prayer, I can talk to God about the things I'm still holding on to and ask God to relax my clutching hands just a little bit so that I can be a part of God's work of forgiveness. We don't have to be super Christians or super holy in order to forgive. We simply need to be open to God's power to forgive, God's intention to forgive, God's grace to offer forgiveness. When Jesus forgives the woman with the alabaster jar, those who are watching on don't get it. They don't understand at all. They want her to conform to their rules, to fit their understanding of God's justice. And so they can't help themselves. When Jesus forgives her, they wonder aloud, who is this who even forgives sins? Which is to say, who does he think he is that he can forgive sins? But that's just it. Jesus knows exactly who he is. He knows that he's a channel. He's a vessel. He's the way to the Father's love. He's the way that God pours out love and forgiveness on the woman, on the religious leaders, if they'll have it, on any and all who seek God's grace and mercy. Whenever I begin to think that forgiveness is really up to me, either to extend forgiveness or to receive forgiveness. I try to remember some wise words of the English theologian and pastor Austin Ferrer. Ferrer wrote in one of his sermons this beautiful description of what forgiveness is. He writes, God forgives me with the compassion of his eyes But my back is turned to God. I have been told that God forgives me, but I will not turn and have that forgiveness, even though I feel the eyes of God on my back. God forgives me, for he takes my head between his hands and turns my face to his to make me smile at him. And though I struggle and hurt those hands, for they're human, though divine, human and scarred with nails, though I hurt the hands of God, they do not let me go until God has smiled me into smiling. And that is the forgiveness of God.
be smiled into smiling by God. May God continue to use this ongoing work of forgiveness, mercy, and grace in each of our lives, and may we have the humility and the good sense to stay out of God's way. May we receive and be a part of God's forgiving work. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.